reading is from Matthew 22, 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar's, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. We all like to get our way. We want to do what we want to do. We want to have what we want to have. It's our natural impulse. And you can see it from childhood. Mom says no to having candy. Most of us as kids wouldn't have just given up. You'd go find Dad and ask him, especially if he was working on a project or watching sports. He's distracted, and he'll just say, yeah, 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 go have some candy. <laughs> of course, after a while, some fathers uh, become savvy once they've been scolded a few times by their better halves for letting the kids scarf down candy bars. And uh, over time, they might learn to ask, did you ask mom? The idea, of course, is that dad wants to be on the same page with mom, sharing a common will is supposed to be the norm for their relationship. The ideal is that their instructions won't be at odds with each other. I think we have a similar kind of situation going on here in today's text. You'll recall that in Matthew 22, Jesus has gone to Jerusalem with his disciples. They've entered in dramatic fashion on, on Palm Sunday, Jesus on the back of a donkey. He went into the temple, created quite a hubbub there by overturning the tables, and he's been going back and forth um, with the Pharisees, with the high priests, and the temple. And we've just covered three parables in which he's essentially again and again uh, condemning the Pharisees and highlighting how those who would seem to have no place in God's kingdom are in fact going to be found in God's kingdom, whereas the Pharisees and some of these leaders are not going to be found within it because they've rejected Jesus. And so, given the fact that he's condemning them, and condemning them in a pretty public fashion, 
It's no surprise that we find in Matthew 22.15 that uh, it says that the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They're sick of this guy. They want to get him to stop saying the things that he's saying, and they, they want to get him in some trouble. Um, now, it's typical for, as we've seen as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, you know, as we see in the rest of the Gospels, for the Pharisees to be trying to trip up Jesus in some kind of way. Um, but what's really striking here is that they're collaborating with the Herodians. Now, we've read already before in Matthew that they, they have collaborated with some of their theological opposites. Uh, they've collaborated with the Sadducees. Um, and in fact, the Herodians and Sadducees are, are kind of intermingled because um, most of the Herodians were Sadducees. Um, but the, the, what's meaningful about the designation of Herodian is that these are people who are in favor of Herod's accumulating power and coming to rule in Israel. Um, and if you know anything about Herod, he's, he's not a Jew. Um, he is basically the appointed king for the area by the Roman Empire. And so most Jews aren't really big fans of Herod, and we've seen how Herod has beheaded uh, John the Baptist, and uh, and so it, they kind of make for an unlikely pair, kind of an odd couple, the Pharisees and these Herodians, because the Pharisees are much more conservative. They certainly want to, wouldn't want to be pals with the Roman Empire, um, and yet the relationship is useful for them at this point. They kind of have, you know, the, you know the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's kind of what's going on here. They both really don't like Jesus. And, uh, and so they, they team up together to try to trip him up. It's interesting because it says that the Pharisees sent their disciples to ask Jesus this question. It seems as though they're, being, they're trying to be so tricky that they're going to send some kind of their underlings who don't seem all that threatening in order to disarm Jesus Maybe to make him think like, oh, these, these people asking questions are genuinely interested in my answer. Like they're just kind of innocently curious. But as we see in the verses, that's not the case at all. Um, instead, what they've come up with is a very carefully designed question to trip up Jesus. And before they ask that question, though, they start by flattering Jesus, trying to kind of let him let his guard down. They say, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. It's like they're trying to butter up Jesus, like, you're this great guy and, you, you know, you know, you only stick with the truth. So tell us, Jesus, what, what is the truth in this question that we're about to ask you. And the question that they ask is this. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So the question is, to pay the tax 
or to not pay the tax. Now, for us, as we read this, we might seem, think, oh, this is kind of an interesting question. But from our possession as 21st century Americans, we might fail to see the obvious danger in trying to answer a question like Jesus, like this. Um, if Jesus says that they should pay the tax, then it's going to appear that he's playing patty cake with the Romans. The Jews did not sign up for the Romans to rule them. They were conquered. No one, most of the natural Jews do not like the Romans unless they're just trying to use them to get accumulate power for themselves. The people at that time were heavily taxed, both between the Roman Empire and the temple tax. I was reading it, uh, in the commentaries that was suggested that the people were probably experiencing about 50% of their income being taxed. This enormous taxation. And it's like, what could they do? I mean, it's just brutal power. It's like, you're going to pay the tax or you're going to pay the consequences. And of course, it's the timeless truth. No one likes taxes, but especially these conquered people, these conquered Jews, they do not like these taxes. So if Jesus says, you've got to pay the tax, he's going to become kind of unpopular. There's also this religious aspect as well. Um, you'll remember first, the second commandment given is that given to the people of Israel is that they should make no graven images. And uh, the thing about paying a tax using the Roman coin is that it's got images on it, and it's got images of the Roman emperor and, with certain claims on it. Um, that's the coin that um, is being referred to in the text. It's a Roman denarius. It's got uh, Tiberius Caesar on it. And uh, what it says on the coin is this. It says, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Um, now this claim was that Caesar Augustus, who was this guy's father, um, had become a god. So Caesar Tiberius is a son of God, according to the claims of this coin. And then on the back side, uh, you have this female, which I believe is supposed to be um, uh, it's supposed to be Tiberius's mother, but depicted as the Roman goddess Pax. Pax means peace. Um, so you've got on the front the emperor, who's claiming to basically be a son of God, and on the back you've got this Roman goddess. So yeah, um, most Jews would not have been thrilled with that, and so you combine that with their distaste for these high taxes, it seems like a pretty good pretext to be like, we're not paying <laughs> these taxes. And in fact, this is what um, ha happened roughly 25 years earlier. In 6 AD, you had Judas of Galilee. He led a tax revolt. Um, and ended up getting put down. He, 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 he was put to death. Um, but that whole movement kind of created a whole segment of the population known as zealots. Um, thinking about people who are zealous for overthrowing the powers of Rome. And it's funny, if you pay attention to uh, those who were counted among Jesus' disciples, you'll see the name Simon the Zealot. So Jesus had 
people in his, uh, among his disciples who were very sympathetic to, these, to this cause of overthrowing the Romans. Jesus' group of disciples was a real mixed bunch. Because remember, who is Matthew? What was Matthew's occupation? Tax collector. So someone that's completely in bed with the Roman government, and you have someone who wants to overthrow the Roman government, both of them are disciples of Jesus. Um, so with all of this in mind, the fact that if Jesus says... Um, that they should pay the tax, that, we, that he's going to become unpopular. That's the first danger. Um, all these details reveal the second danger. Um, the second danger is that if Jesus says, oh, you shouldn't pay taxes, then he'll be identified as a threat to the Roman government, and the consequences, the consequences will be potentially lethal. And that's exactly what the Pharisees and Herodians are hoping for. They're hoping that they can get proof that he's an agent against the Roman government and they can get him killed. And, and that's, in fact, what they end up trying to do anyways, try to make him out to be someone who wants to overthrow the Roman government. It just turns out they can't pin him on this, this uh, anti-taxation charge. Um, but Jesus wasn't about to be tricked because he could see through their ruse. Um, in verse 18, it says that he could see their evil intent. And he calls them hypocrites. Now, he calls them hypocrites because they're insincere um, in their question. He knows that they're just trying to trick him up. But it also seems that perhaps he's calling them uh, hypocrites because, uh, based on the request that he makes next. In verse 19, he says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. So apparently they're carrying this coin around. And I can show you this after service. Um, this, isn't, this is just a replica, but this is the coin. So not a huge coin, but they had this. Um, and they were able to produce it and, and give it to him. And he says, show it to me. And he asks, well, whose image and inscription is on it? And, and they say, Caesar's. And so he says in response to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. It's a sublimely simple response, but it's certainly packed with meaning. And so... Let's unpack it a little bit. Um, so, kind of the basic meaning that we get here, just based on what Jesus has said, is that, well, they have this coin. They have this coin. It's Caesar's coin. So just give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. But it also seems that he's trying to indicate something larger about the relationship between God and government. Because he follows that up by saying, give to God what is God's. Now, if you think about that a little bit, that might strike you as funny because, of course, everything is God's. It's not as though the things that belong to Caesar don't belong to God. And when we look in the Old Testament... We see in Psalm 89, 11, 
It says, the heavens are yours and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. In First Chronicles 29.11, it says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. So how does, how does all that square with the fact that Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's? Well, it seems that in some ways he's, he's, he's indicating that taxation by government is legitimate. And maybe you'll remember that he's already talked a little bit about taxation in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 17, verses 25 through 27, you'll remember a couple of um, officials from the temple had come to Peter and said, hey, are you and Jesus going to pay the temple tax? This was a tax that not, not put out by the Roman government, but put out by um, the temple to try to support its operations. And, uh, and then when Peter came into the house, uh, Jesus says this to Peter. He says, what do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duties and taxes? From their own children or from others? Peter said, from others. Um, and then Jesus said, then the children are exempt. So he's affirming that everything belongs to God. And insofar as you are a disciple of Christ, you are a child of God. And so it's not you're not under any kind of compulsion to have to do this. And yet, in this instance, Jesus and, his, and Peter pay the tax in order so that they may not cause offense. So that's one consideration of why um, one might pay taxes, is so not to cause offense, even though you understand that, well, everything is God's, and I'm a son of God, and, and so I wouldn't have to technically do this. Um, but there's more than this, too. Um, as we look to the relationship between God and secular governments, um, Jesus isn't denying that everything is God's, and he's, he's not denying that here with a Roman tax. What he's indicating is that there's not any kind of competition between God and Caesar. Um, it's not like Caesar versus God, and you have to choose whether you're going to pay a tax or not. Um, God's not threatened by Caesar, because everything is God's. Caesar is just a civil servant in the big scheme of things. He's no son of God. Um, now, the critical text for us when it comes to trying to understand the relationship between God and government can, can really be found um, in Romans 13, 1 through 7. Um, we obviously get indications of the relationship here in the Gospels, but Paul really teases it out in Romans 13. Um, oops. There we go. Um, and Paul writes there, and I've highlighted the parts that indicate the relationship between God and government. It says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what 
God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. Sorry, I jumped ahead a little bit. For no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. So again, to the taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now let's remember the context here in which Jesus is speaking and Paul is writing. They're talking about the Roman Empire. If you know anything about history, the Roman emperors were not saints. (laughs) They were pretty rotten guys. Um, And so when it comes to identifying what is a legitimate government, what's illegitimate government, we see that there's a pretty wide latitude as to what is a legitimate government if the Roman Empire counts as a legitimate government. Now, what's clear here from this passage in in Romans is that ideally, you're going to have an alignment between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of earth in terms of the standards of justice. So yes, everything belongs to God. And within that sphere, we can think of the governmental authorities as God's civil servants to order society to uphold justice. Now, of course, it's not the case that they are usually aligned. In fact, most of the time, uh, governments and the values of God's kingdom are out of alignment. I think you could have said that about the Roman Empire, obviously, that they were out of alignment with with God's kingdom. But that doesn't mean that we can just disregard the rule of government. Um, And so I think we can kind of conceive of it like this, is this idea that when it comes to God's will, you know, everything belongs to God, but when it comes to God's will, yes, there are ways in which the government is acting against God's will. And they are not a working to do what God has called them to do, which is to uphold justice. And instead, they've made themselves in league with uh, really Satan's will. But you also still see that there's a a chunk of that circle that still falls under what is legitimate government in terms of what God has called them to do. And so we need to respect that. We need to abide by that. Um, now, what we aren't being called to do is to obey laws, mandates, or decrees that would defy God's rule. Because th- then that would be taking away that which belongs to God. Um, 
And there's a couple of examples of this. Um, if you're wondering, what are some exceptions um, to obeying government? Well, we go to Acts 4, for instance. Acts 4, 18 through 20. Um, now, this isn't a secular government um, in this instance, but Peter and John have been brought before the, the temple authorities, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. Um, Peter and John have been preaching... The Sanhedrin's sick of it, so it says they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So the authorities are telling Peter and John, stop preaching the gospel, and they're like, we can't do that. Um, because that would be to act in a disobedience to God. Now, another example. You go to Exodus. Exodus 1.17. Now, you remember the whole setting for um, the emergence of Moses as this leader of the Hebrew people begins with his journey in a little reed basket down a river. Now, the reason why he ends up in that basket in the river is because... Pharaoh has made this decree that all the baby boys among the Hebrew people are to be killed upon being born. Um, Now, some of the midwives were not up for doing that. And so, in Exodus 1.17, it says, The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. So notice how their disobedience to Pharaoh is described as fearing God, as respecting God, as obeying God. So between those two instances, we see that, yes, there are going to be times in which we cannot obey government, in which we must defy the rules of the Caesars of this world. But, you know, putting that aside, the norm is that we ought to respect government. In 1 Peter 2, verses 16 through 17, Peter tells us, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. That's a pretty challenging calling. But the idea that Peter is getting at is that you better not use Jesus as a pretext for just leading a rebellion just because you see some things in government that you don't like. God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. And so the times in which we have to act out and in which we have to disobey truly ought to be exceptional. Now, there is a day coming when this delegation of authority by God to these earthly authorities is going to be brought to an end. It will be done away with. And that time will come when Jesus returns. 
Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 28. It says, Then the end will come when he, that's Jesus, hands over the kingdom to over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. That's basically all governments. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. So in the end, if you think of kind of the yellow as being the heavenly sphere, the green representing the earthly sphere, all of this is going to be brought together under the direct rule of the kingdom of God. Jesus knows all this. Caesar is nothing. Taxes are nothing. They won't last. They won't endure. His kingdom is not of this world, but it is coming to this world. And so he's able to give them a response that leaves them dumbstruck. They're amazed. They thought they were going to get him finally, but he slipped right out of their noose. They don't have anything left to say, and so they just walk away. We are not Jesus, but we are members of his body. And so as members of the body of Christ, we represent his continued presence on earth. We don't have disciples of the Pharisees and Herodians asking us, these kinds of political questions. But there are plenty of others these days asking us. And I think intended or not, and I think it's mostly unintended, but these questions are usually traps for us. And they're traps that we sometimes fall for because we do not have the mind of Christ. Jesus was no fan of the Roman government. He knew they were unjust. He knew they would crucify him. And yet he paid taxes. He recognized their legitimacy because he understood their rule was temporary. But that it was God-given. Every earthly government is temporary, but God-given. The United States of America is not eternal. And that's something to which we can say, thanks be to God. Our government and all other foreign governments will one day be removed from power because Jesus Christ will return and establish once and for all the rule and reign of God's power. But for now, they are legitimate. They do not own us because we belong to God, and so at times we will need to disobey like Peter and John, like those Hebrew midwives. 
We should never stop preaching the gospel. We should never participate in harming or killing innocent people. But Lord willing, these should be very exceptional circumstances. Apart from these, we should be known for being law-abiding and peaceful people. It doesn't matter who wins or loses this election or the next or the one after that. We are still to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And we can do this fearlessly because we know that all is in in God's hands and that nothing can be taken away from him. Caesar is a mere civil servant. We know that our fate does not hang in the balance. Our salvation is not in an election cycle. Our salvation, our future, is Christ and his kingdom. It is only in Christ and his kingdom that anyone can have a future. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed by your wisdom, the wisdom which is revealed through Jesus Christ, by his interaction here with these Pharisees and Herodians. Father, we sometimes struggle against the reality of being under earthly powers because Father, they are not always just. Like the Roman Empire, Father, they can actually be quite rotten. But Father, we understand that this is a consequence of our rebellion against You. And so we live in a broken world. But in that brokenness, Father, we also understand that You have ordained government in order to promote peace and justice on this earth, Father. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to be obedient, to honor those that you've called us to honor. And that at the same time, Father, you would give us the resolve to disobey when necessary, when we're, when we're told that we need to stop doing something that you've called us to, preaching the gospel, when we're told that we need to hurt other people, Father. God, give us the courage not to participate in that. But aside from this, Father, help us be agents of peace in our society. Father, we thank you for the liberty that you've given us. That we need not be anxious about anything because our fate does not depend on this country. Our fate looks forward to your kingdom, Father, which is coming and to the return of Christ, your Son. We give thanks and praise to you for this, Father. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. 
Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.